This is Radical Love Life, an ongoing series of podcasts and special events where we explore faith outside the boxes. Hosted by Mark Dilcom and Kelly Wilson. Hey, Kelly. Hey, Mark. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Um, had an interesting ride here, um, but <laughs> yes, yeah, so you were uh, I, you were sharing a little bit. You um, your your Uber driver is trying to save you. Yeah, yeah, and mm-hmm. in doing so, he he ended up taking a really low, a really slow route here. I think mm-hmm. he wanted to tell me as much of the gospel truth as as possible, um, mm-hmm. but then then turned on me. Mm-hmm. When I I mentioned how slow we were going, he started arguing with me and. Uh, I think that the spirit of, of capitalism came into the car. <laughs> so maybe he would have driven faster if you would have acknowledged what he was trying to do sooner so he could have gotten you out of the car and maybe picked up another customer. But because you refused to participate in his attempts to save you and share in his evangelism, he, dr- he drove slower. So if I publicly proclaimed the Lord earlier for yes. expediency, we would have gotten more rare. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's that exactly makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So, well, I'm sure, I, I bet there are a lot of cultures and, and people who've done that hmm. for that very reason. Next time you know. Well, how are you? <laughs> I am, I, as I always say, I'm freaking awesome. Um, I am so grateful to be back with you uh, for another episode of Radical Love Live. And um, so what are we going to talk about today, Kelly? Well, today we are talking with our good friend, Dr. John Thetaminil. How are you, John? I'm doing very well. Uh, I'm looking over John's uh, biography here. There's so much to say about him. Um, he's a professor at, uh, at Union Theological Seminary in yes. New York City. Uh, he's a Tillich scholar. Um, he's recently, um, were you ordained or... Mm-hmm. In the, um, in, in the, the Anglican Church. In the Anglican Church. Do we? Yeah. I have to call you Father. Uh, you are under no obligation to call. <laughs> Thank you, John. Uh, he's written uh, countless articles. Has uh, you know, appeared in in several books. Uh, his his uh, most recent book, "Circling the Elephant: A yeah. Comparative Theology of Religious Diversity," is available wherever you buy books. Um, and uh, we're just uh, you were so ha- so glad to have you back. Um, John was one of our very first guests four years yes. ago, and we yeah. <laughs> kicked off Radical Love Live, um, and has been a supporter and friend ever since. So, John, welcome. Oh, I'm delighted yeah. to be back. Yeah, John, it's good to see you, my friend. Truly, it's uh, you know, as we were just talking a few minutes ago uh, before we uh, started recording, you know, it, it it's it's it is hard to imagine that four years has gone by that quick, but that's what COVID does to us all, right? And it, and certainly the pandemic put us in different spaces. And for you, you know, I look at, you know, where you've landed in British Columbia and with your lovely wife and you have your life out there and then you come back to New York City to teach on occasion. But, you know, it's, 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 your, your presence has felt uh, all along through this. And um, I will, I'm going to share this with all our listeners. Uh, one of the things that John said, uh, that night in January 2019 uh, at our live event at St. John the Divine mm-hmm. uh, Cathedral there in New York City. John uh, said something that is always sticks with me, and that is one's the, uh, uh, atheism is only as good as one's theism. And it is such a profound thought. And, and I'm going to say it one more time just for people to 
reflect on it for a moment before we get started with some other conversations we're going to do with John. But again, one's atheism is only as good as one's theism. Yeah, I love that, that idea. There's so many, um, I see so many faces like young, vibrant, smart people who have yeah, TikTok channels or, you know, they're on Twitter or whatever. And they have, um, you know, they've run into some of those very essential arguments that one runs into about Christianity when you start first thinking about it. You know, those kind of like sophomore thoughts about, you know, how does God allow pain? And, and, and instead of digging deeper, they then become these kind of like, all right, I'm an atheist now. I've, I've defined a certain kind of God, and I don't believe that that kind of God makes any sense. Therefore, I don't believe in any God at all. And, and kind of like move on. And there's there's a whole spate of these, yeah. and um, you know, they're very popular. Um, you know, everybody's got their own journey, but I do think that there's probably more to the story than just I've defined God in a certain way. That way, it doesn't make any sense. Therefore, I don't believe in God. That's right. Every possible conception of God is equally unworthy. Uh, oh, that's nonsense. <laughs> uh, that's. That's a great way to add on to that, John. Huh. And, you know, the other cliche that one often hears, uh, and this feeds into our conversation for today, um, is the claim made by atheists that goes something like this, right? That every Christian is an atheist about every other religion. So we are only making one more God than the Christian does, because the mm -hmm. Christian is almost all, almost all the way there, because they negate uh, adherence or respect for any other tradition. So, uh, of course, I mean, this seems like a clever thing to say, but it, it ignores the fact that many, many Christians have been open to other religious traditions, and therefore do not spend our time negating other traditions. And, you know, adhering exclusively only to one. So that line presumes a, a complete ignorance of the entire interfaith conversation. Um, but it's, it's another cliche you hear in atheist circles. Yeah, and I've, heard, I've heard it from comedy stages and I've heard it from okay. you know, proper philosophy lectures at uh, that same point. Uh, when you talk about Christians um, being open to other religious ideas um are you are you talking about um sort of religious pluralism or are you talking about some of the kind of the hidden ways that you know that we also adopt ideas of capitalism or you know borrow from greek religions without even realizing it i mean i think all of the above uh in my particular remark i was just pointing out the fact at least within most denominations of the mainline churches, there's some often formal uh, institutional body dedicated to ecumenical and interreligious relations. So the idea that what Christians spend their time doing is, you know, trashing other people's faiths is just not true. It, it could hardly be true given how much work. Uh, we've been putting in at least since the 1960s in engaging with other religious traditions. But your question points to the fact that almost all of us um, are being profoundly influenced in one way or another 
by a variety of religious traditions. Certainly folks who call themselves SBNRs, spiritual but not religious. <laughs> the nuns, it turns out, are actually not nuns. They're often persons who are learning from and drawing resources from multiple traditions. So as I say in my my uh, essay, Eucharist Upstairs and Yoga Downstairs, there are entire churches that uh, have programs that they host um, and sometimes even participate in, uh, like Yoga Downstairs, or the there there's a Buddhist group that meets downstairs and does Sunday Eucharist Upstairs, <laughs> and the membership between the two groups is porous. Uh, there are people who go to both. So there are a number of ways in which that cliche of Christians as committed to uh, their tradition alone and either ignorant of or uninterested in or actively opposed to other traditions. That's just not true anymore. Right, right. It's, um, you know, it's, it's interesting, I think, even even for those Christian groups that that are strictly exclusivist and um you guys know my background i come from very conservative evangelical space where where we might prohibit uh yoga in in a church because of its history etc um but i, I would refer to uh the article that you recently did was um christian century that has that starts with a provocative quote um, why is being a Buddhist Christian a problem, but being a capitalist Christian is not? <laughs> um, that even for those groups, there are still at least you know philosophical ideas that are infiltrating Christianity that are um, syncretic with it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, clearly, we are in a period where two kinds of hybrid Christianities are in active operation. One is, of course, uh, capitalist Christianity, which you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. And the other, of course, is Christian nationalism. I know you guys did a conversation with with uh, Whitehead. Uh, and so you know all about this and your listeners do, too. So these are two forms of hybrid faith uh, where uh, Christians are uh, combining Christian convictions with tendencies that are actually inimical and directly contrary to Christian. Uh, and, and nobody thinks twice about this. And, and it's not even thematized as a potential problem. Uh, this concerns me immensely. So uh, it, it's worth saying that I'm not uh, somebody who says that every form of hybridity or religious multiplicity uh, is copacetic. <laughs> That's right. Uh, some are really problematic uh, because they're completely at odds with each other. Uh, I so, mean, John, I, oh, go ahead, finish. No, I, I was just, you know, the, the, the critical question uh, that Augustine asked at the beginning of the Confessions, right? What do I love when I love my God? Uh, that's... That's one of the ways I define theology. Theology is asking and answering that question. <laughs> what do I love when I love my God? Uh, by the way, he asks it inside of prayer. All of the entire book is a prayer. Mm -hmm. um, so he's asking about the nature of God within the context of praying 
which shows that praying itself can be this complex operation where one longs for and seeks and asks critical questions and clarifies. Uh, but if you ask the question, what do I love when I love my God? You also have to ask, well, what are the other things that claim my love? Uh, and are they worthy? Uh, because if it turns out that what you actually love practically is uh, wealth, fame, uh, sex, any number of alternative things that are in effect divine for you, practically speaking, they're what you actually worship, then you've got a problem. And I don't think that problem occurs when Christians are seeking also to learn from Buddhist traditions or Hindu traditions. Um, we are actually trying to learn more about ultimate reality by gathering wisdom from other traditions. I'm, I'm not sure that's what's happening when we think that the market will be our savior. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there, I, I picked up another a second great line in there, John. Uh, so I'll, I need to make sure I write that one down to remember. Um, so I was going to ask the question, and this is hopefully not too rhetorical, but how has this happened? <laughs> like, what what has caused us to to get to this circumstance that that we see ourselves and and how folks, especially in American culture, are defining themselves to be Christian, and they have co-opted, hybridized, whatever whatever it is that they they've attached problematic elements but yet they don't see the problem like they have no problem with that what what what's underneath that what's driving that oh i think that is one of the most profound questions to be asked and um i don't think i have an exhaustive answer but i can at least begin to uh map out a trajectory of thinking about this so let's try to think about it together i think i suspect that one of the key reasons uh, for this weird fusion of Christianity and capitalism, Christianity and nationalism, routinely white nationalism, is rooted in very idea of religion. Um, in recent work, I have been writing about people who have taught me that we have not always thought about religion, the word and the category. Mm in uh, the same way as we've come to think of it. Put simply, we don't have religion in our modern sense until we have its contrary term, namely the secular. So modernity, and I think this is a, if not the defining feature of modernity, is that period in which Western Christians aim to believe that there are parts of our lives that are secular, and only a part of our life, a distinct part of our life that is religious. This notion that there is only a part of our life that God is interested in, <laughs> which is the so-called religious part, would have been incomprehensible for most of Christian history uh, because God is interested in everything. Right? Uh, God is interested in taxes. God is interested in justice. Uh, God is interested in care for the poor. So the idea, for example, that economics is a properly secular matter uh, and 
there's something else that is religious that's not economic, right? Uh, and the economy is handed over, not to the theologians, but to the, the master priests of the guild, who mm -hmm. are the economists, right? They are the ones who know how the economy operates. God has nothing to say to that. Uh, only fundamentalists confuse these two things, right? To be a proper modern person is to know what things religion should stay out of. And basically, it's Wow. right? It's wow. not, you know, politics is in the hands of the political theorists and political scientists. The economy is in the hands of the uh, economists. All of these public realms are in the hands of the state or the market. So what's left for religion? Uh, well, the flight of the alone to the alone, right? Mm -hmm. it, is, it is my, my personal relationship with the Lord, uh -huh. uh, right? Uh, and, and that's a severe attenuation of what is, what is our uh, conception of the religious. So again, in all of the history of the church, these distinctions would have made no real sense. Uh, now, now, having made that clean-cut division, or tried to, I don't know that we ever kept it as clean as all that, we have forgotten that the heart can be claimed by all of those things that we call secular, right? That, that the shaping of our desires, going back to Augustine's questions, what do I love when I love my God? Well, my desires can be shaped more effectively by the market than by what any priest or religious community tries to do. Because the market is insidious, right? It has ways of uh, working through the advertising industry to colonize our desires. So I, I like to say that the market has you while you dream. You can dream capitalist dreams uh, about wealth and success and uh, and your uh, local priest has you for a 15-minute sermon at most. <laughs> right. And if you're Anglican, you should probably shoot for 12. What a kid. Don't want to, you don't want him to, 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 to nod off or get too antsy in the, in the pew, do you? Yeah, right. when I was a sound man at the cathedral, I had my finger on the, on the slider at 11 minutes. So it would <laughs> slow fade if I needed to. <laughs> Like, but but I like, mean, out like at the Oscars, yes. <laughs> that's hilarious. But but I mean, you see what I mean, don't you? That that, mm -hmm. that we're uh, massively outgunned by the desire shaping tools that that are in the hands of the market, that are in the hands of our social media company, that are in the hands of those who study the psychology of addiction to keep us on. Because our attention is now a commodity that they can monetize. So um, to the extent that you capture my attention, you can shape my desires. And if my attention is itself a commodity, right? Like mm -hmm. I can grab your attention, then I can sell you things. Um, I can shape what you want what you think you ought to do and be. 
Well, that's that's all a profound shaping of the heart. Yeah. Uh, and to tell me that none of that is religious, right? Is it's a fascinating operation. Do you see what I mean? It's all defined as secular, so we think we don't have to think about that. We, you know, it's only when you try to mix two religions that you got a problem. But mixing capitalism and Christianity, well, that's fine because those are not two religions. But if both are ways of shaping the heart uh, and shaping the heart in really radical ways, then I think we got some, got some problems here. Literally, wouldn't there be a lot of um, dissonance, you know, because, you know, the heart being the heart space being what it is. And I love your use of that word for that. You would have your your heart being t- and desires being tugged in, in what are different directions, uh, something that's immediate and physical and tangible or maybe intangible, depending on what it is. But versus something that is, well, let's face it, you know, when we talk about religion, it's ethereal. It's 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 not something that you can open up uh, under, you know, for Christmas or, you know, it's not a, a thing you can drive or, you know, live in per se, you know, physically. So is it, is it that we've, uh, we've become so consumeristic as well because of this, of our desires that we just have closed off our space to, to even be interested in religion? Is that your? Oh, uh, I think, I think definitely. Um, We have, we're here working on a couple of really difficult and really almost civilizational issues. Um, As I said, I'm working with a kind of hypothesis that modernity is defined by this division. Mm-hmm. Here are the things that are here are the things that are religious, and we have been told, particularly liberals broadly construed, that the only people who should who confuse the two are are either pre-modern or or fundamentalists in one way or the other. Mm-hmm. So having produced this bifurcation, um, we have, the story goes, disenchanted most domains of life uh, and have subjected most domains of life to rational procedures. I'll put, put my hands in so you can see that I'm scare quoting. <laughs> Rational procedures, right? Yes. Uh, so, uh, so politics, statecraft, economy—all of these now are supposed to operate on rational principles, uh, having been disenchanted from spurious claims about God's involvement in all of the above. There are some really brilliant people, including Eugene McCarraher, who's got this 800-page tome that I'm working through very slowly called The Enchantments of Mammon, How Capitalism Became the Religion of Modernity. I think that I I may have the subtitle uh, slightly wrong. He'd be a great person for you to have on the the podcast. He argues that this, this story that we have told of modernity as a period of disenchantment is actually not true. It's, it's, it's the case that mammon has become our enchantment. Uh, and so that's one way of disrupting the story of the modern as the, as the period of, of disenchantment. And the thing is, 
Mark, you had this exactly right. There's something, I said this in a recent sermon, the, all the false gods are extremely tangible and they seem more real than the, than the living God who uh, is invisible, right? Uh, the, the tangibility of the false gods, their, their claims on us are so real. Uh, and, and they do, Mark, create deep internal stresses, I think, for Christians who are, who are self-aware. Um, so, yeah, that, well, we can keep talking about that. Mm. It's, it's interesting then to think that, you know, and we often turn a critical eye on this show to, um, you know, different Christian groups who seem to be he heading in um, unloving or unchristlike directions but that their motivation to sort of have have a larger religious umbrella over their life or have religion touch more areas of their life might be misguided it might actually be an admission that the divine does infuse every part of our life and just trying to trying to make sense of that yeah uh, my, I, I think that's right. I think that's a shrewd observation. Uh, and I think the attempt to bracket religion into some inward corner is probably a thing that was never meant to, it was never possible, never, it can't be pulled off. Um, the thing is, though, how what seems to be happening is an attempt to impose a privatized Christianity onto public space. Mm -hmm. um, well said. It, it's, not, it's not a kind of comprehensive claim that these other spheres of life, like economics, need to be rethought in the direction of justice, um, but a kind of baptizing of the secular as Christian, right? So free market capitalism is part of freedom in some mm -hmm. vague definition of freedom, right? So uh, capitalism and Christianity are fused. It's not that Christianity calls into question the legitimacy of capitalism. Uh, there is no attempt to say, well, maybe there are a whole host of goods that ought to be held in common, mm -hmm. right? Because they're essential goods for all human beings and they ought not to be privatized. Um, like, like say, water. Yeah, that's uh, a good one to start now, isn't you know, it? Yeah. Maybe, maybe Nestle and other water companies uh, in a period of global droughts should not be able to pump vast quantities of public water uh, and monetize it for their private gain. Um, what a radical thought, right? I mean, water is ours, and it's ours collectively, and it should be, I'll say the heretical word, free. <laughs> and, and not monetizable, right? But But if Christianity is somehow 
about freedom in this loose sense, freedom to uh, monetize things, the freedom to buy them is somehow what freedom means here. You're in a weird position where you're actually baptizing what seems to me exactly the opposite of uh, Christian commitments to the well-being of all persons. And it also, it, it, it's, it relegates that period in the New Testament that talks about how the followers of Jesus shared everything in common and made sure that nobody had any needs. It relegates that to this like very specific, tiny little dispensation that happened for a brief time after the life of Jesus before Christianity hitched itself to empire and became an entirely different thing. It, yeah. yeah. But almost all the church fathers that we know of, uh, Chrysostom, for example, uh, preach really radical sermons against uh, the hoarding of wealth. Um, and the argue, and argue that, that when that happens, the poor are, are neglected. The, the wealth is, is our you know, is to be shared equitably among all in need uh, and not hoarded for some at the expense of others. Uh, but the, these kinds of things are, are, are called communist or socialist, uh, but really all, all were articulated by the, by the church fathers and mothers. So, John, let's think from a, from a U.S. perspective. Is, was the beginning of the bifurcation uh, with the creation of the First Amendment when we just when we actually stated that uh, you know the U.S. Uh, government will not establish any state religion and so therefore it it set up what is a secular system because one would argue that even in Europe under you know, uh, uh, you know whether it was you know um, you know a monarchy or any other type of system that God was usually the monarch themselves. We still see the vestiges of that through, you know, what goes on in England. But was is that the point that that started? It is certainly part of a key step in the production of the idea of religion as we now know it. Um, so inspiration, or at least one of the inspirations for the Constitution is John Locke. So, you know, you have to trace the current of ideas um, that led into the formation of the Constitution as uh, contributing to the manufacturing of the distinction between the religious and the secular. But yes, I would argue that the Constitution is, is one of the founding documents. Yeah. And of course, it goes all the way back to, um, among other factors, the tensions between the Catholics and the religious, and the, and the yes. Protestants, rather. Yes. And then you know, the attempt is made to define, what, well, what can we do about uh, these tensions? Can we define something that we all perhaps have in common? And so you have uh, the production of the category religion shaped in part by deists and others who say, well, we can all agree on certain things. Protestants and Catholics alike, and we can call that something like natural religion. So that's also a, a part of the production. And then, of course, the argument that we clearly can't continue to kill each other in the name of 
our religious conviction. So that too feeds into the production of the category. Um, so it's a very, very complex story. Okay. So <laughs> I love what you just said there. And so, yes, are we as a, as a, um, a natural uh, faith system, tradition, religion, uh, that we're not going to kill one another, but yet we still have denominations that will uh, other marginalize, uh, even go so far as to demonize particular individuals because they don't fit their kind of brand uh, of what is holy. or and, and so we see much of that, which then, you know, it's not, I don't think, too coincidental that we see it also in the form of Christian nationalism and this othering, like we have to, it has to be very specific and you're either in or you're out. Like it's, there's a, there's a line to be, uh, not to be crossed. It's a, yeah, uh, very complicated question you're asking. I mean, among yeah. the things that's, I suspect been covered in your conversation with Whitehead, um, at least as I see it, this word Christian is now functioning largely as a kind of identitarian category. It's mm. not the content of Christianity uh, or of traditional Christian theology that matters to people who call themselves Christian. In fact, there are some statistics showing that there are people who identify with the category evangelical who are Hindu. <laughs> so the literature is showing that that category evangelical is becoming a kind of hashtag or a uh, a brand marker to identify you with whiteness and with nationalism, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it is an us versus them category. Uh, and if you embrace the word evangelical, what you're embracing is a set of political postures and convictions, usually, uh, well, not usually, almost always, uh, right-leaning. So, uh, I know I, mm. Kelly looks sort of stunned uh, that, that there being <laughs> such a thing as a, a Hindu evangelical. We're not talking about evangelicals who have core convictions um, <laughs> that classical evangelicals used to have about the inerrancy of script. I mean, these are not classical convictions. These two are pretty recent, but say biblical inerrancy, salvation through Christ alone, those kinds of markers. No. Evangelical is now just a mark that you are part of a certain kind of community uh, that identifies with the political right and votes Republican. And, uh, and that's what the category means. Um, and people who no longer go to church but used to also claim the category um, and have no particular interest in core Christian conviction. But the category is still an important marker of identity uh, to do exactly what Mark just talked about, to, to erect an us versus them mm -hmm. or to make a claim that the U.S. is a Christian nation. Now, no one should be deceived that this claim about being a Christian nation has anything to do with more equitable relations between the rich uh, and, and the increasingly uh, immiserated. That, that, right. Any any of the, the the themes of classical Christianity about justice, about God's love for all of us. No, no, no. 
That's not what we're talking about here. It's an identity mark uh, to colonize the public space and to mark out public space such that people who don't identify as evangelical or Christian are the other. Interesting. Interesting. I'm trying to think of all, I'm thinking of all the other ways in which that identity manifests itself. I'm thinking like I shop at Walmart instead of Target. I uh, eat at Cracker Barrel instead, you know, I mean, you know, or I, you know, mm -hmm. I go to the Chick-fil-A drive-thru, you know, they're capitalist. I go to Home Depot instead of Lowe's. I, I drive a Ford. Yes, you can keep going. I know, I know. I just, um, there's a long list there that exactly identifies and does categorize to this. And so is that, is that what it is to be a Christian these days? You, you have to check these boxes. Well, and it seems like that there are certain, I mean, there are certain wedge issues that are always in, you know, in politics, you know, and you see sure. a lot of it now about, uh, about abortion rights is, you know, is a big one. Um, somehow immigration has, has come tied with evangelicalism and, and shutting out evangelical immigrants that it's become all about this kind of like, well, if they would only follow the rules and personal responsibility and it, you were a Christian, a but you're a, a, you're a less worthy Christian because you're on the other side of the line. But is the moment you come over legally or you play by the rules, then you're on the right side. Right. That's the only time um, that the federal government is right. Is yes. what it makes immigration rules. Every, every other time they're <laughs> taking away our rights and trying to uh, groom our children. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. I'm, uh, <laughs> what, one thing that I um, want to make sure that we do touch on, because I think that we can critique American, um, you know, American capitalism and Christianity uh, for a while, um, is to talk about religious pluralism, because that's yeah. really part of, you know, where, you know, where we started is, you know, on one side, you've got this group that's like, we are the only ones we are. Um, there's only an exclusive way to heaven. Everybody else is other. Are there ways that Christians can see religious diversity as a blessing rather than as a problem? Oh, um, absolutely. Uh, and I think, I think you can do that on very traditional Christian theological foundations. I mean, at its narrowest, you, you have to be thinking about a kind of theodicy problem. Like, how can I affirm that God wants all to be saved and then also affirm that one can only be saved by explicit faith in Jesus Christ. When most human beings, for most of the existence of Homo sapiens, have had no access mm -hmm. to the Christian gospel. So you, you've got yourself already tangled up in a theodicy problem. Like, well, I, can I really believe that God wants all to be saved? Am I just saying that? Uh, because clearly God hasn't created a world in which that could be structurally possible uh, until, until, well, the birth of Christ. And then, of course, one of the major problems that, uh, that occurred when the new world was discovered 
was the sudden sobering realization that there were entire populations of indigenous folk uh, in in North America. So there was an entire in North America and South America that could have never heard yeah. the, the Christian gospel. So, you know, right off the bat, you've got the major theological problems that are purely problems that are internal to Christianity. Mm-hmm. That drive you towards saying, well, surely, uh, to quote from Hebrews, God has not left God's self without witness <laughs> in all these other places. Right. right. Nature itself is uh, witness or. Absolutely. Um, so surely the presence of God can't be available and accessible through my tradition alone, because that would be a very small God. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would be a God who of necessity consigns uh, almost all human being uh, to some form of loss. Uh if you don't uh, believe in eternally conscious, uh, you know, retribution in hell, which is just another extreme version of the same problem. So right away, you've got, a, you know, at, at the minimum, you've got theological reasons to say that if you really believe in a God who loves all, wants all to be saved, there must be ways of knowing that God that extend beyond uh, the borders of, of one's tradition. When, then you actually go around post 1965 in the U.S. anyway, uh, when our ex- our exclusivist immigration policies, right, mm-hmm. which were on the books since at least 1925, the Asian ex- the various Asian exclusion acts, mm-hmm. which prohibited people who were non-white from coming into the country, even people from South Southern Europe were excluded by and large. Because they weren't white enough, mm-hmm. so you then you meet all the people who come in in the influx of uh, the Immigration and Nationality Act. Uh, people like me who finally are here, uh, but also persons from other religious traditions, and you suddenly encounter people who have vital lives of faith, and you can see that their lives are marked by a kind of joy and holiness that are enviable uh, mm-hmm. and seem to be, to use traditional Christian language, manifesting the fruits of the Spirit. So now you got a real, real problem. <laughs> it's not just an abstract theology problem about God's justice, but you have real experience with religious diversity. And now, as I routinely say to public audiences, uh, the religious other is no longer on the other side of the planet, but often on the other side of the bed. Uh, and so you're, you're living lives um, in, your, you know, in the office, in schools, in workplaces, and, and in the bedroom with people mm-hmm. who are dear to you. Your kids have converted to other traditions, right? right. Now you have to ask yourself a real problem. Are all these folks... Uh, just out of luck. Uh, are they misguided? Are they following lesser lights? It's it's it gets quite hard to make those kinds of affirmations when the evidence of their lives testifies otherwise. So I think these are the reasons why thoughtful Christians have begun 
to move away from narrowly exclusivist postures and mm -hmm. then read their traditions afresh. Frankly, this is where I think the deconstruction thing also comes up. Because, mm. because among the things that Christians no longer find credible, particularly young people, is the idea that to be Christian is to affirm that all others are lost. I mean, that's like a no dice, right? No entry. If you, if you, if you want me to affirm that, and affirming that is a condition of entering the church, I'm not. I'm not joining. I cannot believe that my neighbors, my siblings, my partners are persons who are uh, headed towards perdition. So this becomes a critical issue for deconstruction. Right? I, mm -hmm. I can no longer accept a Christianity that is exclusivist. And as soon as I realize that that is no longer a credible position, and you tell me it's essential to faith to hold that position, well, I, I will either leave or we'll have to find theological resources to reconstruct uh, away from a Christian exclusivism. I mean, I'll pause there and I can keep going, but you know, it feels like a soliloquy if I, if I don't let you guys get in here. <laughs> John, you're doing just fine. And uh, no, it's, uh, so you have, you have this gift of being able to take something that's very complex, this type of conversation that we have, and breaking it down into very easy to understand language that for Kelly, me, and for our listeners as well. So I appreciate that. You bring up the very good point that I've said multiple times and even witnessed in my own experiences, like it simply didn't work for me, but it was the guilt of being in wilderness and seeing it as that as well as seeing that as a negative, not as a positive. Now I look at being in wilderness as a positive, and I even, you know, say I'm in wilderness by design. Part of that is because of the deconstruction and reconstruction I do, but it also makes my faith stronger. But I think, I guess, my point I'm getting at is that it is very new concept for us to even consider what is deconstruction or or even let loose of what is, uh, or, or maybe let loose or even ignore the external pressures of shame to think that, you know, it, it's not okay to be religious or have some kind of faith, like, because, you know, granted, I'm, I have a certain age, I'm 59, you know, so I'm a, on that cusp of, uh, you know, Gen X or basically where, you know, that it was assumed everybody was, had a religion and a faith. To your point, uh, the Gen Zs especially, they're like, uh, no, we, we, we don't do that. And it's amazing. In two generations, we've gone from Gen X, millennials, and now into Gen Z. And Gen Z is like, yeah, we're not doing this because it is absolutely anathema to what they see out in this world, which is, I think, hopefully will be good for all of us if we can, you know, lean in on where they, their tolerance levels are, are, are not there where ours would be either because, you know, they just, I don't know what happened if maybe something in the water, but it is it, it is invigorating. I think it's a great time for faith, right? That the it, it, you know this it, the asking the question is God is dead? Well, yes, God is dead. The, the, this God that was there is not the one that people will will want any longer. And people are simply saying, I will not put up with. And the the God or whatever I'm going to call it is the one that I identify with. That is something that is love. That is not harmful to anybody else. So. 
it's exciting time, I think. But yeah, I two things seem important to note. One is that no, is my dad calling? Uh, I will. He will call at least one more time. I have no idea uh, how to turn it off on my computer. I've turned it off on myself. My apologies for that. Uh, so two things have to be said. One is that uh, at, from the 50s into the 60s and into a good chunk of the 70s, though all of this is a change in the 60s, you you really had to be a church to gain entry into uh, the respectable circles. That is to say, Christianity and, and, and power were so closely intertwined that you couldn't really access certain kinds of social credentialing without being in church, right? Yes. Because Christianity was, in some sense, institutionalized. Yes. Uh, that begins to fall away and makes uh, the folks we now call uh, evangelicals or fundamentalists profoundly nervous because the, the wedding of church power and state power is no longer intimately there, right? So once that falls away, people don't have to be a church in order to be able to um, access various kinds of social uh, and cultural clout. That just is not where one gets clout anymore. Then you have to ask uh, very, very practical matters, right? When, when our society became uh, one in which two bread earners to make ends meet rather than one, you still you have further. Uh, reduction of the, the sheer amount of hours for one or the other partner to get people ready and get them to church. Uh, so there are some real sort of material economic reasons that are afoot as well, because if both partners are working, those weekends become precious. Uh, and it becomes the time you spend with kids or you take them to soccer games or whatnot. And again, the pressure to go at church is overwhelmed by the pressure to be uh, on the sidelines of your kid's soccer game, uh, or just to spend any time with them when both partners are now in the marketplace. So wow. there are these sort of structural reasons break us from the from the wedded nature of social and cultural status and church attendance. Mm -hmm. So you can't ignore these sorts of material factors. That, that played a role. And then, of course, we have the straight-up theological conviction. That, you know, if you are being told by people in the church that your dear ones are are lost or damned, you're not going to want to go <laughs> join that organization either. Uh, and so those are, there are some theological reasons that also lead to the falling out. But the idea that Gen Z is not religious well, no, that's simply not true. They they might say they're not religious, but they you know they will say that they are spiritual. Hence the yes. the discourse of spiritual but not religious. So it's not a kind of uh, atheistic wasteland out there. 
as no, people would like to think it is. Uh, it's, it just isn't. The stats it don't. Isn't. It's not. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting we talk about these generational uh, developments because I've been in very conservative churches where they're very much holding on to this dream of whatever conservative Christianity was in the fifties and trying to trying to go back to that. That um, I've heard them say we're two generations away from losing Jesus, that if you don't continue to indoctrinate your children with this ex theology, that there's this culture outside. And that, that culture war language is always interesting to me because the Christian church is so much part of American culture that pretend like they're like culture is outside the church and is against <laughs> it. Right. It doesn't. It doesn't make sense. But there's this idea that there's this godless culture that's trying to pick apart Christianity. Whereas at the other end of the spectrum, there are all these people who have, um, you know, the word now is deconstructed. You know, when I when I did it, it was a little bit before that. It was more just I was just backsliding or apostate or something oh, like that. That's that, what I was. Yeah, right. We didn't have. You know, I was just lost. Yeah. Um, you were in wilderness. Indeed, indeed. But that are deconstructing, but they're now finding all these new ways to connect with the divine, to create community uh, using, you know, using technology and incorporating uh, practices and ideas that come from other traditions. And that there's actually, there, there's a lot of thriving going on that maybe isn't isn't seen in those other in those other quarters those more conservative yeah. and part of that has to be some kind of theological work that, that that articulates ways in which we can affirm that god or the spirit or the christ are known beyond the boundaries of the church that the church has no monopoly on the divine life and that the spirit blows where she wills and yes uh, the idea that we have a controlling interest or monopoly on the divine life. I mean, can you get more heretical than that? It, it's, a, it's a dubious notion. And among the things I do to sort of help people along is to remind them that people like Justin Martyr, uh, whose name already tells you uh, uh, of his fate, in the second century, he was making claims that people like Socrates and Heraclitus were Christian. Wow. Because they followed the logos, right? The logos that became flesh in the Christ was the logos that they followed in their quest to uh, follow what is rational. And that quest for the, for the rational is a quest for the logos, right? Um, so this... These kinds of ideas were present as, uh, you know, very early in the history of the Christian church, in the 100s. Um, they're actually present in the New Testament, right? Uh, insofar as the doctrine of the Logos is all already, in some way, meant to affirm something like this. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was God, and the, and the Logos... Well, you know, I'm messing it up. 
in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was the light that illumines all person, not some person. So, uh, and that, that Logos that is the light that illumines all persons then becomes flesh in Jesus. So there's already in the Gospel of John at least what is called an inclusivist possibility, which is that the fullness of God is known in the Christ, but that God is, that is to say, the Logos is, is everywhere. The Logos is that through which the creation is sustained. The Logos is that by which all rational operations take place. The Logos is that which makes all knowledge possible. So, you know, that's at least a thing that you can uh, affirm on good uh, theological, biblical principles. Most of us uh, who are on the uh, left go a bit further and, and jettison the part whole language uh, that we know in full uh, and others know only in part. I mean, and there are many ways to, 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 to do that. Um, and at least one is to say, even if it is the case that uh, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus the Christ, what makes us think we know and understand that fullness? Mm -hmm. uh, so you can be a, a very a committed uh, devotee to a kind of high Christology, but the higher your Christology, the, the more you'll have to understand that you can't possibly know the fullness of the Christ. Um, so the whole logic of part whole, we have in, they have in part, we have in whole or full, that too begins to break down theologically. Um, and the pluralist position is one in which we hold that all of us have genuine but partial knowledge of the infinite. And uh, no, the infinite, right? <laughs> you can find like yeah. creatures can only have partial knowledge of the infinite, even with revelation uh, helping us along. And if that's true, then we have grounds to learn from each other, right? It might well be that my Hindu neighbor or my Buddhist neighbor has access to elements of truth that my tradition doesn't. Um, and then we enter into a, a a more mutualist posture where we are each trying to learn from the other. And I think if something like this possibility were well articulated in the tradition, this wouldn't be the part of the tradition you would need to deconstruct. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. yeah. You know, like there, there might be other things you need to deconstruct, but, but if a kind of inclusivist or pluralist Christianity is, is, is conveyed well to people, this won't be uh, a stumbling block. Hmm. I'm really, I, w I want to dig into that a little bit. I'm, I'm glad there's a couple of points that, that you made there. Is, is one is we don't know the truly the universality of Christ. If, you know, if salvation or wholeness or connection with the divine only comes through Christ, we don't know if, you know, that, you know, you know, John 316, where, you know, that they put the football games talks <laughs> about God so loved the world, like that's everybody. So there's that part of it. 
But then there's also another part, and this is something that I, I struggled with early on when I started meeting people who were um, of other religions or had no, no particular religious belief at all. I could see them thriving. I'm like, this, this requirement that you have to consciously believe that the person of Jesus Christ is the Savior, and if you don't do that, then you are not saved. Mm. I really struggled with that, and, and then I've seen other theologians try to make sense of it, you know, like Karl Rahner with the, you know, those people are anonymous Christians, those good people of other religions. They're Christians, but they don't know it. I I can't see saying like somebody, you know, who as a, a Jewish person who's been um, persecuted Christians their whole lives to say, but they're they're a secret Christian and they don't know it. It's almost an insult. Yeah, and it doesn't acknowledge the distinctive gifts of Judaism, or to say that about a Buddhist somewhere like that Buddhist is really like a secret Christian and he doesn't even know it. Doesn't acknowledge the particular gifts of Buddhism and its distinctiveness. So being able to, you know, and I think that's one of the hardest things is for people in certain Christian beliefs to get over what that means. Like when Jesus says, I am the way, does that mean, what does that mean? You know, is that mean that you absolutely have to believe this particular story or else you're lost? Or does it mean that to live like I do is the way to the divine. And there's a lot of other people who have that example, like to open that discussion up a little bit so we can see and acknowledge others. Yeah, Kelly, uh, among the things I have learned, probably from Paul Tillich, is that the Christian conviction that you can only be saying saved if you affirm a certain proposition is uh, a kind of works righteousness because you have to believe something earnestly and holy for you to be saved now that's actually not a christian conviction because you're 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 positing that you are being saved by something you do namely affirming you're something stealing yes. god's saving work yourself yes. So, I mean, I thought the, the Christian gospel was that we're saved by the love of, of God disclosed in Christ, right? Uh, so we're not saved by anything we do, including certainly not making ourselves believe something, uh, which is just another way of promoting works righteousness. So that cannot actually be the way that any of us is saved. I am saved to the extent that I am claimed by the love of God as I have come to know it through Jesus. That's what makes me a Christian. But other traditions have other ways of being in intimacy with the absolute. Um, and that is something that I think I can affirm on good Christian grounds. Mm -hmm. right? Precisely because I think that God really does love everyone and that God is present in and through all things. I mean, that's what it means to say that the Christ is the Logos, through whom all things are made and sustained. It's not like God made them and then took an extended vacation. 
the Christian tradition affirms that all things are being kept in being by the word. So presumably, the presence of the divine is, uh, is replete in all things. Uh, all things cry out to the presence of uh, mystery. So it's likely that other people have other ways of accessing that mystery or that mystery has ways of making itself known. Now, there's always going to be a kind of inclusivist element, right? Because I am saying that the absolute or, or the ultimate that I know is in some way also at work in other traditions. I don't quite see how I can avoid making that claim, um, but I can say a more equalizing claim. I have no reason to believe that uh, my way of accessing the ultimate is superior to all others. Amen. I have no good grounds for believing that. Amen. And, and I'm just simply staying, saying <laughs> that that to be the case, right? Mine's better than yours. Neener, neener, neener. Well, I mean, you know, there's a funny argument that John Hay made. I, I really do think it's funny. Uh, he's, he's, you know, the towering philosopher of religion of the last century. John Hicks says, you know, there might be some reason to believe that one's tradition is superior to others. If, for example, it was uniquely good at erasing, say, social harms and promoting social goods, right? Uh, so suppose the Christianity was so good at healing the world. Uh, and then he had another criteria, uh, the saint production criteria. Mm -hmm. Suppose suppose Christianity was stellar at generating, uh, really transformed people in ways that were markedly better than other traditions. Then that too would be uh, a reason. The same production criteria and say something like the social good criteria. But is that true? <laughs> it, it, it simply isn't true that oh. Christianity as a tradition has done any better than any of these other traditions. So, I mean, I'm not sure that these things are testable by empirical propositions. Yeah. You know, uh, I, come to mind. Uh, well, I said the Crusades come yes, to mind. Yes, the Crusades come to mind. Colonization comes to mind. Indigenous genocide comes to it's, mind. God, yeah. you just took that right out. Conversion you, therapy. You, conversion therapy. There's a lot of things that we do. It's like, yeah, okay. Maybe we shouldn't use that as our as our benchmark of, uh, of uh, greatness. Yeah, so there's really no good ground to believe that we're any better at any of these things than any of the other traditions. Uh, and certainly on the same production criteria, you know, I'll, I'll see your mother, Teresa, with the Mahatma Gandhi, you know, <laughs> I'm just saying that even on a on this narrow notion of empirical criteria, yeah, there's no argument to be made that my tradition pulls it off better than traditions of others. Wow. <laughs> that's really, that's really true. Um, and it's, you know, I, I can see that being one of the reasons why why we're seeing what's happening in institutional religion in America is uh, people looking at the situation going like we, you know, not only have we not done well, is we're, we're currently not doing well, uh, oh. and, you know, particularly with issues of um, 
LGBTQ inclusion in churches. Um, you know, we're seeing some horrendous uh, abuse and exclusion or the kind of bait and switch. Like, we love everybody, but when you get in here, we're going to love you by telling you you're doing the wrong. And that that leads to this um, this deconstruction process. And that's... Right. I would just say that we, we have to do two things. Uh, we have to recognize the truth of that first point that you made. I think there are stats available that show that with the rise of the Christian right, particularly with uh, the moral majority and, and others, the, and the wedding of the Christian uh, public image of Christianity with the Christian right, that I think can be directly correlated to the generational drop-off. Mm -hmm. uh, when, when, when young people are seeing that, they're like, I'm out, I'm out. Uh, so I think Christianity has been done in by its most ardent defenders uh, or proclaimed defenders. Yeah, so that, that should itself be a worth, worth, uh, worth pondering. Maybe if I'm defending Christianity rather than living it, I'm a poor witness for what it is that I claim to believe. So that, I love that, John. <laughs> I mean, because Christian witness is to be lived out. Christian is a thing I do and am, not something I defend. Uh, so I think I think that's one critical affirmation that that, that uh, the defenders of the faith have often been its enemies. The other thing is to actually tell other stories. This is not the whole of the Christian church. Just because these fake folks are the, the, the public face doesn't mean that there aren't tons of people out there doing powerful work, not least because they don't, they know it's not their mission to call attention to themselves. Right? Uh, so I think, you know, ironically, we're in a situation where folks who are in broad-minded church communities do have to say a little bit about their their ways of being Christian, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And and I think they exist. They're out there. Uh, you know, think about the Moral Mondays movement and Reverend Barber's work. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, when there are people who are actually living the faith in a, in a courageous way, uh, witness that is in no way interested in calling attention to itself but in instead is committed to advancing some actual concrete social or moral good um then that speaks for itself but also i think you have a role to play in this right podcasters and others who give witness to broader conceptions of christianity have to play a role in saying you know maybe Maybe Jerry Falwell Jr. isn't our, you know, or or Pat Robertson. Maybe these aren't uh, the folks you could identify Christianity with. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe you ought to remember that Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was a reverend. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you should uh, learn something about the witness of Dorothy Day and the Catholic it's, worker movement. 
Yes. Maybe you need to know something about the work of liberation theology yes. uh, in the U.S. and in Latin America. Uh, yeah. There are other stories to be told about, about Christian living um, that are not quite so ostentatious and therefore can fall out of the public eye. Yeah, it's amazing. I remember in it was my freshman year in college that I learned about like Dorothy Day and um, uh, some of the you know Gutierrez and you know a lot of these these figures that as you know, as a Midwestern Protestant evangelical we, we knew nothing about that like we just kind of assumed that you know there were like kind of three big things you know that there was like the Catholic Church up until about fifteen hundred then Martin Luther then modern evangelicalism and that was <laughs> the holy trinity of christian history no, except you know and notre dame football that was kind of the other <laughs> <laughs> the South Bend, so yeah no. wow wow we have uh covered a lot of topics uh uh today haven't we yeah yeah i had some questions here but i i think conversation flowed in exactly the way it needed to um i probably want to um talk about the upcoming uh, conference and talk at uh, Drew University that you're going to be involved with, John. Yes. Um, this is the God After Deconstruction event um, that's happening uh, February 9th and 10th. Yes. At Drew University in Madison, New Jersey. Yeah, uh, I am very much looking forward to that. I'm not quite sure yet what precisely I will say. Certainly, I'll say something about what uh, we've covered so far, namely that that religious diversity and Christian approaches to religious diversity should not be even a reason for deconstruction. That is to say, to the extent that we can make clear that Christianity has always sounded um, inclusivist and pluralist notes, that's part of the tradition's legacy. Being open to other traditions is not something the liberal theologians you know, who are at Union make up. That's, that's not how it goes. There's a long-standing witness to this truth. So that, you know, uh, you know I, 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 there are lots of other reasons to deconstruct, as this, but this need not be one of them. Um, and to the extent that it is, it's, it's our own fault that the churches are not teaching uh, its young people that inclusivist and pluralist possibilities are present at the heart of the church. And at the heart of the gospel. I mean, just one thing I routinely point out is that you know, my favorite, one of my favorite Bible verses is uh, when Paul is uh, speaking at the Areopagite, uh, I'm sorry, at the, at the Areopagus. And he says, you, uh, even your uh, pagan thinkers say that God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. I don't have the wording quite right. But he's quoting Epictetus, I think, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, a pagan philosopher. I think mm -hmm. Stoic. I'm not absolutely sure about that. I haven't checked on that recently. So, I mean, even our biblical text is, even some of our most cherished verses are actually citations of, of other religious traditions. So to the extent that we can actually make this known, I think, can help people in the deconstruction slash reconstruction process. So I think I'll definitely be talking about that. But I'm more interested these days in talking about uh, sort of learning with and from persons from other religions. 
it's not just enough to say, I think they have uh, access to the divine life. I want to know concretely what that means. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if they really know things about the divine life that I might not, or is not as fully articulated in my tradition, then it's time for me to, to actually put in some time and learn with and from persons from other religious traditions to see as they see by practicing as they practice mm. uh, and then letting this infuse our traditions. So my work on Gandhi and King and the way in which they learned from across traditions is a case in point. I think the world has already been transformed by Gandhi learning from Tolstoy, Tolstoy learning from American abolitionists uh, and, and Quakers and peace churches to read the kingdom uh, proclamations of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount as a call to radical nonviolence, right? Tolstoy yeah. learned that. Gandhi learned it even more fully and then, and then enacted it. Uh, and then gave to us Christians, King, King's teachers, and, and the rest of us, a powerful account of Jesus as satyagrahi, Jesus as nonviolent activist. Um, that's a new Christology yet from a Hindu. Uh, and that kind of interreligious learning is the way forward in which we, we genuinely learn uh, wisdom with and from persons from our tradition. So I suspect I'll be talking about some of those themes. Beautifully said. So, um, yeah, again, folks, so uh, we're talking about God After Deconstruction. Uh, that's going to take place on February 9th and 10th at Drew University in Madison, New Jersey. Uh, as John was saying, he will be one of the speakers, along with Trip Fuller who has his uh, homebrew Christianity, as well as uh, Tom Ord, who have, is from the Center for Open Relational uh, Theology. Catherine Keller, uh, who is a, uh, uh, she's on faculty she's there. Faculty yep. at Drew. Yeah, she's going to be there, uh, along with uh, Bruce Epperly and Alexis uh, Lilly, which John did tell me uh, before we started recording, Alexis was one of his students at Union Theological, correct? Correct. Small world that it is. So if you want tickets for this, uh, go to Eventbrite. Just look up God After Deconstruction. Tickets are on sale now. It'll start, uh, I believe it has the exact time in there, something like 5 p.m. on Friday, five, 5 or 7, something, Friday afternoon, and then it'll uh, continue on into Saturday as well. So uh, uh, I'm super excited about that. Kelly and I are going to be there as uh, podcast partners. Uh, and um, so, you know, who knows what we'll be uh in store for Radical Love Live and how we're going to broadcast from there as well. So, so sounds great. Yeah, yeah excited. excited to be there. So, John, thank you very much for your time. Oh, it was a pleasure. Yeah, yeah. it's always great to talk with you. Uh, we could we could keep going and going. Um, so hopefully we'll we'll do this again soon, and we'll see you. And we'll see you we'll in see person. You see yeah, you live. Right. Yeah. Yes. Well. All right, John. Thank you so much. Take care. Too. So, folks, this is another episode of Radical Love Live. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you found uh, some good uh, wisdom out of this. I sure did. Uh, and uh, Kelly, uh, I appreciate your partnership as always. Always a, always a good conversation. And if our listeners want to uh, respond or you have any questions about the conversation we had today, find us on social media. We're 
uh, Radical Love Live on uh, Facebook and Instagram and the entity formerly known as Twitter. So uh, come <laughs> find us and uh, we're, we're happy to talk with you guys as well. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Radical Love Live, co-hosted by Mark Delcom and Kelly Wilson. All rights reserved. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and other popular podcast platforms. Go to RadicalLoveLive.com to learn more about us, watch recordings of our live events, and listen to our podcast. We also invite you to check out what Kelly and Mark are doing by going to our websites. Find Kelly at KellyWilson.com and Mark at MarkDilcom.com. This is Radical Love Live, where we explore faith outside the boxes.